Happy Friday, everyone. Happy 4th of July weekend. Happy holiday. Welcome to the Make Climate Cool Again podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Miltenberger, where we talk to environmental entrepreneurs and leaders about how they're making positive climate change. I want to just say thank you guys for your patience. I'm working on getting back to a regular schedule for these podcasts. Um, the last two weeks have been a bit rocky, as you know, is just social media in general. I think we're all figuring out what the best way is to move forward. Um, and it's been a bit rocky, but we're powering through. I'm powering through. We're trying to stay positive. How are you guys doing? I think we need to do a little mental health check and say, hey, are we okay? Are we stressed? Are we excited? Do we have our podcast queued up for our long road trips that we have coming up this summer? Are we packed? I think, oh man, packing. Packing for any trip is just, I don't know, as an adult, I've talked about this with a friend recently, it's just, it's just exhausting packing. And then unpacking, you just throw everything in the laundry and it's great. Um, I feel like that's what I look forward to when I unpack. Um, but you know, I know that it's it's typically a month where everyone's kind of traveling and um, maybe has some have some long car rides. And, you know, I think podcasts are one of the best ways to get through some of the monotonous long car rides. And you don't have to talk to your family or your partner or your friend forever. Like you can have your catch up for the first 20 minutes and you're like, well, I don't really want to talk anymore. But like, let's turn on a podcast, right? I think it's great. It's free entertainment. And as you know, as listeners, it's, we benefit. It's our job to share. That's our payment. That's our giving back. Um, that's how these podcasts, you know, I'm not just talking about my podcast, but any podcast that you listen to, um, we, you know, we obviously don't get paid to do this. It's it's really our passion. And I think when you you share, you're, kind of, you're giving back to that person who's making that content for you to enjoy and that's your payment to say, hey, thanks. Let me maybe maybe you get a follower from it. Maybe you don't. But just knowing that someone's sharing and, and, and giving that love is is huge. It it just it feels really good. So, just want to let you know if you have a favorite podcast, whether it's this one or another one, share it as much as you can. Um, just with everything going on, you know, it's helpful for everybody. But if you do want to continue to engage with the Make Climate Cool community, you know, I'm I'm here. Uh, if you know someone who'd be a great guest, tell them about it or tell me and I'll reach out. I'll do the work. I'm cold emailing all the time looking for new companies to bring on. I've got my Google alerts so that I know, you know, what's new, what's coming up, how to keep you guys uh, in the know. So let's build this community together. And I'm definitely trying to think of more ways to kind of create information on different platforms I know, or maybe you haven't heard, but I'm hosting IG Lives every Sunday this July at 8 p.m. on different topics. This week, we are talking about greening the kitchen, uh, just going through kitchen routines, different products that I use that I recommend, um, and just small changes you can make that may have a big impact on your, your waste footprint, your recycling, things like that. So I'm excited about it. I invite you to join and ask questions because I'm here for you. I want to help you find answers and learn. So to continue to do that and give you my all, 
I need a little help and that's just a little share, a little engagement. But um, I, it's just like amazing how fast time flies. I don't know how much I shared about this on the last episode or maybe you're new here um, or maybe you haven't listened to the last episode. Uh, but my boyfriend and my friends, we camped the Appalachian Trail a couple weeks ago and it was amazing. It was incredibly difficult, uh, but I highly recommend it. Uh, also, feel free to reach out if you have questions about backpacking or things like that. I have a few friends that are experts, and also I did an IG Live with my dear friend Mark Field, who you can go check that out on Instagram if you want to learn more. Um, because now is the time, right? You know, summer is here. So that being said, let's introduce our guest for today's episode. Austin Whitman is the CEO of Climate Neutral, a new nonprofit organization mobilizing brands and consumers to accelerate action against climate change. So perfectly aligned to this podcast, he oversees all aspects of the organization in pursuit of its mission to get all companies to pay up for their climate pollution. And he is just a wealth of information. I think this is probably one of the more technical podcast episodes that we've done but I feel like there's just a lot to learn in this space and I learned about life cycle analysis in school but you know Austin really kind of opened my eyes to kind of how how deep it goes and I think it's just fantastic to learn about this side of sustainability so I hope you enjoy the podcast hope you learn something and I hope you have a wonderful holiday weekend and I will talk to you guys next week. Let's get into the interview. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I put my special hat on for you today. Make America cool again. Wow. So similar. I'm wearing my own branding too. <laughs> I love it. I thought of this hat when I saw the topic of your podcast. So here we are. So where did also, you get that hat? Uh, so there's an environmental group in the Northeast called the Acadia Center. And okay. they put these together for the Women's March back in 2017. So I went to the Women's March and had my hat on with my two daughters. I love it. Let's check that out. I was just going to say it's appropriate for keeping my pandemic due under wraps this morning. <laughs> I, I just got a haircut recently, but um, seems pretty interesting. But I know a lot of people are, you know, taking time. Yeah, yeah. It's not a not a very um, clear time as far as what you should and should not do. And uh, I think everyone's playing their cards just depending on how they feel and how much risk they're willing to accept and how much they want to just kind of ignore reality and get back to normal, which uh, I think that that's, I don't know. I think it's a losing strategy for America as a whole, but some regions of us can get away with it for a little while and we'll be fine. Yeah. And I'm sure like, I think Boston's still pretty, uh, like New York. Has it even gone through phase one reopening at all or still? No, we're, we're in like phase, we're in like phase one of phase two. The phase two was broken up into two, two phases or two stages. I don't know how many different words you can come up with. Two <laughs> stages of phase two. And I think we're in the stage one of phase two. Uh, I honestly don't know what that means. There's some thing about like 
no massage parlors, but yes, haircuts and, and you know, um, the, the, the way they came up, uh, up with like what you can and cannot do under these stages is seems pretty arbitrary. I mean, liquor stores have been open all along, so we know it's mission critical, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know I've personally been like spending a lot of time hiking and just be like taking my dogs out to different places. Um, it feels like the most safe to me just being outside and um where are you in connecticut so i'm in northern connecticut i'm actually camping the appalachian trail this weekend so that'll be interesting i've never done that before but like there's a ton of like awesome hiking to the west of me and there's Mm -hmm. like just everywhere is one i I went to um grad school at yale and we used to go to the uh forest to yale myers and the uh, and the um great mountain great something i don't know uh it's a long time ago now yeah but it's a beautiful beautiful part of the state and and a beautiful part of new england just yeah. so quiet up there i love boston though I, I was almost moved to boston last summer um and then a bunch of stuff fell through and i just started my own business so mm-hmm. that's here we are now here we are yeah. today yeah yeah so i'm really thankful that um that you're coming on the podcast because i know that certifications, um, people are talking about carbon offsets, carbon neutral. I've been hearing even a lot of it about it in the news. I think Patagonia is trying to be carbon neutral by 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really excited to find your company or your nonprofit and, um, and talk more about this industry and, and supply chain and all the difficulties wrapped up in um, in this type of work that you have a long history in. So would just love for you to introduce yourself a bit and tell us a bit about your story. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Well, my name is Austin. I am the CEO of Climate Neutral. And my story of, my modern story of environmentalism starts in 2002 when I was working out in Silicon Valley uh, for a software startup during the first, well, I guess it was sort of the post.com bubble collapse. Um, feel, just feeling frustrated and feeling like what I was doing was not all that fulfilling. And I remember reading an article that was written about a guy named Bill McDonough, who's kind of a legend in the sustainable architecture and sustainability field. He wrote a book called Cradle to Cradle. And it wasn't a very, it was just an article in a um, alumni publication, but it, it, so it wasn't anything New Yorker quality, but it, it just, there was this, there was this paragraph in the article that where he started talking about the coalescence of business and environmental responsibility and how in order to achieve real environmental progress in any sort of large scale, these things need to come together because you can't, business will never survive if it's at at odds with environmental quality and environmental quality will never survive if business is at odds with it. So these these two things need to go hand in hand. And it was at that moment where I thought, man, I felt when I was in college that I wanted to do something in environmental work, but the only options seemed to be environmental science or Mm -hmm. maybe advocacy. And even though I don't consider myself 
you know, through and through, I guess, you know, a, a businessman, a, a man of business. I, I, I just sort of felt like this is so obvious now and I need to do something. So I started looking around at graduate programs to pivot from this interesting but generally not very fulfilling software path that I was on into something that had environment more at the center of it and discovered a great joint degree program that had a master's in environmental management and an MBA and applied and started that in 2004. And then the time since then, I've basically been working on energy and climate from a few different perspectives. I've sort of worked a little bit on the policy angle, I've worked a little bit on investment and finance, and now I'm working on uh, climate neutral. So there you go. <laughs> well, it's funny that you sort of started your, well, started your environmental journey, so to speak, in the Silicon Valley in 2002, because, you know, I've had a couple of people on this podcast from Silicon Valley. I worked at Tesla and lived in Palo Alto. So it's funny you say that though, because now you go to the Silicon Valley and it's like, it's like, I would say one of the most environmental cultures mm -hmm. that I've experienced so far. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's biking, everyone's going to the farmer's mm -hmm. market, everyone drives a Tesla, everyone's like going to Whole Foods and doesn't want to use plastic. And it's just, so it's funny that how that place has transformed since you've lived there in 2002 even. It's an interesting observation. I mean, when I was there, I think, I think Northern California has always had this crunchier more environmentally focused bent to it but the but I, I, I i'm not a sociologist but i guess i would i would say it's kind of like um it's kind of like it, it, it transformed from a luxury into a responsibility mm. where when i was there i feel like there's this attitude of you know, we have access to all this wonderful produce and this beautiful outdoor space and um, this is our this is our kind of luxury situation that we live in, but you're right. I don't. I didn't sort of feel like, at least in the main part of the peninsula or Silicon Valley, like environmentalism was really embraced. This is obviously way pre Tesla and pre major awareness of climate. And pre inconvenient truth. Everyone pre, in my pre era. Inconvenient truth. Yeah. So you were before inconvenient truth's time, which I feel like is a turning point for a lot of people. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was, um, that was in the summer of 2005 when that came out and we're talking, yeah, we're talking the late nineties. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to have a great explanation for it, but I do feel like, um, people, the number of recovered software engineers and <laughs> entrepreneurs that I've talked to in the last couple of years who have, gotten religion on climate and are now deciding that they need to make it their life's work is really, honestly, I think when people ask me what's different now versus the last time we had a big run up, which was 2008, nine and 10, what's different now is that individuals who just do nothing in particular that's specific to the environment now think of the environment as one of their core driving, driving motivators. So, lawyers, PR people, um, you know, people who work in, work in software, entrepreneurs, they all sort of, they're, they're like, they've, they've, they've gotten woke to climate <laughs> and, 
and it's really cool. And I think that that's what will, that's what will create this kind of systemic shift that we need because previously we looked at whether the policy pendulum was shifting, was swinging in the right direction and policy doesn't drive norms. Policy just, policy just creates rules and it can shift Mm -hmm. markets, but it doesn't drive individual norms and individual decision-making. So that's, that's the one thing we're kind of like you know, getting right to the heart of it here. That's the one thing that I think is different now versus like 10 years ago or really at any time that I've been working on this. I, I try not to like talk about this as if I'm kind of this ancient person, <laughs> but like, but some of, but based on my career, I kind of where, where we started and where we are now, um, it does feel like, uh, you know, I've seen a lot. So it's funny when I think about, I mean, this whole podcast is about, is really for regular people. It is for people that, you know, are in all different industries and are doing their own job and their own role. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, people that are accountants, like they study accounting and they study all the skills that are in accounting and you have lawyers and they study specific parts of law. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think people are trying to find a way to incorporate sustainability or environmentalism into the work that they're doing because Mm -hmm. it is something that they're passionate about, but they don't know how to like shift it. And so what I always hoped for this podcast was to be able to bring lots of different people on that are in different areas and show people that there are people committing their lives to this that are making a difference. And there's so many ways that you can incorporate sustainability into work and I think that's what's kind of amazing about it is there's a million ways to be green it's just about I mean and going into certification you know I'm, I'm working with a couple clients that are going for B Corp that are going that are going through the EcoVadis certification you know we do GRI reporting and when you go through those reports there's so many different types of topics and you can kind of ignore some and you're like oh we'll work on those later and really go after other topics. And I think that's what's kind of great, um, but also daunting for a lot of companies. Like, they're like, oh my God, this list is massive. We're never gonna mm-hmm. do it. And I, for my job is basically hand-holding them through that process because mm-hmm. it is scary. Um, yeah. And maybe how is, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about how carbon neutral is sort of attacking that Mm-hmm. desire for companies to really mm-hmm. have an option whether maybe they're not doing maybe they don't they can't be a b corp but they're going to have a product that's carbon neutral like, mm-hmm. talk yeah. about that yeah and just to be clear so the organization's climate neutral and i guess we kind of you know as opposed to carbon neutral climate, oh, neutral, climate neutral sorry um, that's okay no i mean people people confuse it all the time and it's in a way sort of deliberate that we've chosen this very generic bland term for the name of the organization because we want it to be synonymous with something that everybody understands blue right blue is a color but you can also blue is also a brand right um so that that sort of challenge that you just identified is is one of the fundamental things that we are really trying to to help people with is you know, if, if you look at any company that's between a hundred million and a billion dollars of revenues, there's absolutely no certainty or no, no surety that, that that company has a full blown sustainability team that's, you know, comes out of 
um, a long history of working on climate solutions and knows how to speak the language of the people within their organization and knows how to bridge the sort of environmental responsibility with product design. It's tough. And I think what we've, the mistake that we've made in corporate responsibility for many years is basically telling these people, unless you can really understand, unless you're willing to do what it takes to understand solutions in their gory complexity, then you just, there's no place for you here. Right. And so people go out and they hire, they have to hire consultants or they have to build big teams or unfortunately, and, and those, and that's, that's happened certainly, but it hasn't happened universally because there's a large set of companies that have just said, you know what, this is an interest of ours, but we don't have the resources to really dive into this in detail. So we're just going to do nothing because no one's making us do anything. Right. And what we hear from people is, wow, that's a pretty turnkey approach to climate. And it would really help us get started on something that we've wanted to work on for a while. And that's the idea, right? The idea is, is that we give people something that they can understand, that it's clear, and we hold their hand a little bit along the way, and we start the journey. And one of the things that we've done, it's a very simple shift, but it's a really significant one. One of the things we've done is, is we've taken a, a framework that's been around, honestly, for 15 years, which is you should measure your emissions, you should reduce your emissions, and then you should offset your emissions. And we flipped it around to be measure your emissions, offset your emissions, and then reduce your emissions, which to me is a much more precise way of lining it up with the, both the the, the, do, the feasibility of it and the chronology of it. What do I mean by that? Well, measure, reduce, and offset. Basically, you can sort of say, all right, I'm going to measure my footprint. I'll spend six months on it. Reduce. How long is that going to take to reduce my emissions? And what we've seen is that companies will make a 15 or 20 year reduction commitment and then say, once we're done reducing after 15 or 20 years, we'll offset the rest, or maybe we'll do it for five years and we'll offset the rest. But there's no real sort of understanding of how long it takes to reduce all your addressable mm. emissions. That reduction challenge, it's a journey and your reduction opportunities change over time as new technologies become available and new manufacturing processes become available and, and your, your environment, your landscape is, is constantly shifting. So reductions are really a, they should be thought of as a long-term journey, but you need to figure out some way of mitigating your emissions immediately. And that's why we've taken it, measure, offset, and reduce. And we take this in year long chunks. So you measure your footprint for a year, you offset that footprint and you start your, your, your process of reductions. The next year you're going to measure, you're going to offset again, and you're going to continue to work on reductions. In the ideal case, you've figured out a way over 10 or 15 years to reduce all of your emissions so that you actually don't have to offset anything because the footprint that you measure is zero. Climate neutral. Yeah. But in the meantime, you've achieved near-term carbon reductions around the world, CO2 is a global pollutant. It doesn't matter whether it is emitted in China or the US, it's still causing climate change. By forcing those mitigations, those, those offsets to happen today, you're immediately addressing your footprint.
participant while you're inviting yourself to get on this reduction path. And let's consider the worst case scenario, which is nobody figures out how to reduce their emissions all the way down to zero in 15 years. At least you've still done your part along the way to clean up the emissions that you are causing, as opposed to saying at the end of 15 years, hmm, we didn't really get very far. We thought we'd reduce our emissions by 40%, but we only reduced them by 4%. Now we have to offset all those emissions that we had back to 2020. It doesn't really work that way because you can't just suddenly do a massive chunk of off. No, it, there's no conceivable way that if every company got to 2035 and decided to retroactively do what Microsoft is doing, honestly, you know, um, but retroactively offset all of its emissions back to 2020, the world could not simply produce that many carbon reductions in one big chunk like that. It's like, I mean, the, the, the unfortunate but really useful analogy that I often use is just like people on diets, right? You can't, you kind of decide and decide when you're, when you're 20 that you want to go on a diet, but you're going to go on a diet when you're 40 and lose all the weight that you, that you gained over that 20 year period, right? It's an incremental and iterative thing. Same thing with training, which is more constructive, right? I'm going to run a marathon when I'm 40 and I'm 30 now. I'm just going to not train until I'm 39 and a half. Right? It doesn't work that way. You've got to start getting yourself off the couch and getting into shape. It's a cumulative and iterative thing. So it's, it's been encouraging to talk to companies and hear that they really do want to do more than they're doing, but they just don't have the capacity in-house to do it. And that by giving them this little bit of an entry point, they're now building it into their brand identity. They're responding to their customers who are telling them that they want them to do more on climate. And they're getting excited by the fact that they're working on climate. And they're starting to think internally about how they do uh, enable this long-term production progress. I think one of the words you said before, even going back to when we were talking about, you know, Silicon Valley's transitioning or being more sustainable, it, based on my conversations uh, with clients is that a lot of them feel number one, it's, it is a responsibility. They feel responsible. Uh, and it's also an opportunity for them for a lot of it. It's a marketing opportunity for them to get ahead um, for them to connect with customers. Um, and I think also we're just seeing more consumers, at least in the spaces that I'm working, consumers are asking on Instagram, like, why does this have so much packaging? What are you doing about packaging? Like it's, I've seen it even just on like my personal account, like following different brands. I'm not the one asking the questions all the time. Um, and so I think like that's exciting that consumers are really pushing brands and holding them accountable for their product design. And, and but a lot of companies, they think that, oh, well this, you know, this post that we had, or we've been, trends have shown consumers want greener packaging. Let's bring you in. How, how fast can we get this done? Right? Like they, how fast can we reduce our emissions? And it's like, it's going to take forever, literally forever. Like it's not going to end because you're going to create more products that we're going to have to figure out how to continue to reduce emissions. That's the core of your business. This isn't going to take six months. This is, this is a longer journey that you have to be ready and willing to take on. And there is a financial 
um, there's some financial impact, but at the end of the day, there's more opportunity for brands, um, I think. And, but I think when they're going through the process, data collection in sustainability programming is, is so key, but I also feel like it's one of the hardest things for companies, no matter if you're a huge company or a small company, small company, it might be even harder just because they don't have the systems or formal procedures in place. They don't even know what they should be collecting. Whereas a big company, it's hard because you have so many employees that are collecting so many different things and they're not communicating and you got to tie it all together. Um, how does climate neutral really help companies get to that point, right? Because right, measuring is the first key. So you've got to start getting that information together. How, you know, and, and when you go on the climate neutral website, every product, there's clear numbers of, of the emissions and it's so transparent. How does your platform help companies um, gather that data? Yeah, great question. It is the first step, and it's it's to go back to the well, fitness or or weight loss analogy. It's like getting on the scale first, right? You have to have a benchmark. You have to have a baseline that you're working from. One of the things that we did early on was relax the rules, relax the requirements on ourselves to basically say, what are we really trying to accomplish here? We're trying to get companies going on reductions and, and, and trying to get companies offsetting. And if we require that every company go through a six month footprinting journey, that's going to cost them $30,000, I can guarantee you that cuts out 90% of the companies out there. So let's look at the state of the art of the uncertainty that is in these exercises. When you include value chain emissions, there's a lot of uncertainty. It doesn't matter who's, who's doing it or how much money you're spending on it. There's always uncertainty because there's so much complexity in a typical company's value chain. And by value chain, I mean, not just the lights and the heat that power your corporate office building, but all of the raw materials that you buy, the flight miles that you travel, the vehicle miles that people drive in your delivery vans, the waste that you generate when you're making stuff. So all those things have emissions. It's really hard to precisely count those emissions. And so anyone who does these exercises is estimating. So let's just get comfortable with estimating these emissions and give ourselves a precision target that is modest and achievable. And where we're, des we're designing our, our, our computation to be, comp to be um, you know, within a margin of error that is, um, is, is acceptable, but also comfortably high so that if you look across the, the companies that are getting certified, if you were to actually know the true emissions with 100% with precision, you'd find that our numbers are on average at, at or above that actual number. It's, it kind of gets into some theoretical statistics, I guess, but, but the point is that we've sort of said, let's estimate Let's estimate with the, with the margin of, of error that is on the high side. And then let's get people going on this journey. So we looked around at what tools were on the market that might be able to help us do this. And about May of last year decided that we had to build something 
from scratch because nothing had the entirety of what we were looking for. Scope one, scope two, and scope three are the technical terms for emissions that come from things that you burn, fuels that you burn directly uh, within your operations, electricity that you use, and then all the other value chain emissions that I just talked about. So that whole entirety has to be wrapped into one calculator. We couldn't find anything that did it as well and as broadly as we needed it to. So we uh, worked with a team of lifecycle assessment consultants and we put a tool together in rapid fashion, uh, built it in software, which is a really important thing. We at one point had said, maybe this is gonna have to be a spreadsheet, but I think the, 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 the value of making it accessible through software and eventually maybe through an app or something that is very, very kind of easy for any individual in a company to use. Uh, it, it's not, it, it's, it's inestimable. It's, it's really important for us to make this something that people can do easily. So we think of it sort of like the TurboTax for carbon accounting because mm, TurboTax, TurboTax did uh, for tax preparation, you know, what we're trying to do. I mean, meaning that people can prepare their taxes on their own and not have to hire an accountant to do it. So we built this tool uh we launched it in january it was pretty ugly uh <laughs> it had a lot of bugs but it got us through the certification process uh in early april we, we released a significantly overhauled second version that's now running a lot more smoothly and we see this as one of the cornerstones of the organization because as you pointed out initially you can't get on this journey without starting that first step which is which is measuring emissions. So yeah. we have all kinds of interesting ideas where we're gonna be part of a, a tech accelerator program this summer that's focusing specifically mm -hmm. on the tool and um, working with, with a whole bunch of people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere to try to think about ways to develop this in a scalable, affordable way. Um, and we're a four person nonprofit. We're not a massive software company, but we think that there's a huge need for this in the market. That's awesome. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, I took a life cycle assessment class at Columbia in grad school and um, it's tough because, and I remember my professor was saying, you know, it all depends on the scope. You, cause at some point you have to decide where you're going to stop because technically it could keep going forever. You can just keep looking back further all the way into the ground and it's, it's very hard and it's very tricky. And so as a sustainability professional, you have to create the scope and, and then, like you said, apply a margin of error. Um, but so, and supply chain is tricky just because, you know, especially in, when you're making a product that, and it's going from place to place to place. And I'm going to use fast fashion as an example, because I had someone on and I find it fascinating that they'll, they'll, you know, sew one part of the dress and they'll send it to another factory and then they'll put the zipper on and they'll send it to another factory and they'll put the buttons on. And, and instead of it just being assembled in one place, it gets shipped around so many times. So from a, if you're someone in a supply chain department of that company and you're trying to put, you're trying to figure out what the life cycle assessment is and, and how to measure that, that's impossible. That's crazy. So I think, what do you think needs to change in the supply chain industry, or maybe it's from the manufacturing side that would help companies sort of input 
this information into the tool better? Yeah, that's a great question. The strange thing is that for all that complexity in the supply chain, there's very little data that gets reported out of it to the end producers. It's, it's a fairly simple food chain because in some ways, because there's only one, at the, one, you, one entity at the top, right? And that's the entity that's placing all those orders up through the, through the supply chain. So at the end of the day, it all, has to, it all has to come down to what gets reported to that one organization because they're the ones, in our definition, they're the ones who are responsible for all of those emissions. If you didn't place that order from a factory in China, those emissions wouldn't have happened, right? right. The, the transportation emissions, the raw material emissions, none of that would have happened. So you're responsible ultimately. What needs to change is better data reporting throughout that process. There needs to be a, a standard data format that every supplier of raw materials and every, every shipping manager um, gets data, puts data into and, um, and creates a report that that one entity at the top can, can pull from. And that is something that I've actually talked to a couple of people from Silicon Valley and people who just get super excited about, you know, <laughs> data formats and data exchange and things like XML and other, other programming languages. And, um, XML isn't a programming language, but um, you know it's it's a it's a it's a standardized format for for reporting data and structuring data, and that needs to exist in this industry, so that when we go to somebody and say, "Hey, pull all your operational data from the last year," they just have a report and they can dump it right into a calculator, and it has all those miles from trucks from factory to factory, and all those miles shipping stuff across the ocean, and all those raw material purchases. And then it becomes a much, much, much easier process because I, I think the hardest part of this, the thing that we can't really control is what it takes for those organizations to get to collect the data from within their own operations and aggregate it into a point where it's ready to be crunched. It kind of reminds me the way you're saying that. Um, so when I was working at Tesla, I used to carpool with a guy who was pretty high up in the engineering department um, for, and, and we would chat on their way to Tesla and they have a really cool program that he built. I don't remember what it's called, but basically when the car is put on the assembly line and they start uh, putting it together, they track every single screw, like every single thing is tracked. Um, and collect it into a huge data system so that if something were ever to happen to the car, for example, they could look back and be like, okay, when this screw was put in at this time on this date, it was put in with this much force from this drill bit and it has to be exact and standardized. And so then they know if there's something wrong with mm. the car more likely so they can really make sure they have really high quality, right? So. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of that in the sense of, you know, you have to kind of build a system from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so we really, it's like, we need to get the suppliers, these manufacturers to kind of, I don't know. And I know that Bitcoin is being used in this industry. I don't know a lot about Bitcoin, but for however that these products are being interchanged in the marketplace, they're able to stamp data about where it's coming from and how much, water is being used, energy being used. Do you know anything about mm -hmm. Bitcoin being used? Or blockchain. Blockchain, um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the underlying 
the underlying technology. I mean, I don't think blockchain is entirely necessary for what I'm talking about because it, 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 it there could be many uses in um, making the renewable energy or the or the carbon credit market more efficient for sure. But it's it tends to I think specialize when there's a thing Bitcoin is as, as an example uh, that needs to be authenticated and validated and kept in a secure location and really protected where the digital the digital ID of that piece of information is really critical we don't really care about it here right we just need to know how many how many widgets came out of one factory how many miles they traveled to the next factory how many widgets were processed there how many widgets made it to the next factory then how many of them ended up on a ship those are just numbers the what makes it hard is the lack of good data coming out of companies and then the fact that there's no simple way for people to just put this all into a framework that lets them do that math without having to do a ton of research about what what b is in that formula they know a they need to find b and then a times b equals c and b is the emission factor so we have a whole library of emission factors that we've compiled and one of the things that we're planning to do to the tool over time is expand those emission factors to incorporate a whole bunch of other data sets from around the world so that we can start to make it even more powerful than what it does today. But getting to that point of measuring, I think is, is, often, is daunting for a lot of companies. Um, but I think that it's exciting. There's definitely more brands out there that are creating green products. I see them all the time on Instagram, um, social media, people are talking about them. From what you've seen of just what companies are, are getting certified, what do you think is the future for sustainable products? In terms of the industries and what, what products are branded sustainably? Yeah, do you think that there's gonna be more, everything's gonna have to be certified because people mm. are looking for that? Um, because I yeah, do it's, think it's there's really that transparency is gonna be. It's, it's a good question. I mean, the, the industries that we're focusing on are things that I would say, I would call them high interest, you know, kind of the language of marketers, high interest consumer purchases. And what high interest means is that the consumer is really interested in what they choose hmm. as opposed to I, when I go and buy toothpaste, I buy Crest because my mom bought Crest and I buy Crest. And, you know, I've just been brushing my teeth with Crest for 40 years. And the alternative so that's not a high interest consumer product there should be a carbon label or a carbon uh certification on those products as well but we don't think that's the place to start necessarily because people don't dwell don't dwell or deliberate over those purchases as long as they do other things like a pair of hiking boots or a uh potentially a bag of coffee where they're already presented with organic or not organic ground or whole bean, uh, you know, fair trade or not. And so there's an opportunity there to say, Hey, here's one more attribute of that, of that pound of coffee. Cause you're not buying it as reflexively. You're thinking it a lot, thinking about it a lot more. Mm -hmm. So any sort of high interest consumer product, um, it may be because it's, it may be high interest because it's more expensive, uh, because you buy it less frequently because you're giving it as a gift, uh, because, you because there's more cachet associated with the brand so there are lots of reasons why these things do draw more attention from consumers but we think that's the place 
where this type of designation, our label, uh, will really start to move the needle. And my favorite recent example is just after we did our April Earth Day launch of 105 certified companies, somebody posted to the Instagram feed of one of the companies that we certified called Rumple saying, I've been debating whether to buy a Rumple blanket or a Pendleton blanket. And now that you guys are certified, I'm buying a Rumple blanket. Oh, and it's like, that's what's supposed to, that's what's supposed to happen. I know I can't tell you if that's happening at scale, but um, you know, that's, that's the start. So there are two different kinds of sustainability claims, I guess, broadly speaking. One is just what the carbon content is of product. And then the other is what the, what the company is actually doing about it. And we've seen some efforts to do carbon labeling. Unilever actually just announced that it's going to do carbon labeling on some massive chunk of its product lines. But I don't know how much evidence there is that people actually know how to evaluate that. Mm. So whether there's 13 grams or 17 grams of carbon in this one breadstick, I just, I don't know. <laughs> like what, what's the, what's the difference, right? I mean, yeah, I guess people don't low, know what's good or what's bad. You I know, guess we know lower calories, is, better, high, yeah. is high better. Should we have more, more carbon in that breadstick? I mean, what if it's charcoal? I mean, more carbon in my charcoal. That sounds right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we have, and, and then the other thing is it's so the only mechanism for change there is that people decide to shop for the lower carbon alternative and that's only possible when you see multiple options on the shelf and you can see you're comparing like for like everything else is the same i'm buying you know between three different types of fruit roll-ups and i'm buying the one that's lowest carbon because i know that 13 is good or low is good and 13 is less than 15 which is less than 17 so i'm buying the 13 gram one so for us, that doesn't go far enough or fast enough. So the second type of label that we that you know, could could exist um, on a product with respect to climate is what is that company specifically doing to mitigate its, its carbon emissions? And that's what the climate neutral certified label signifies: is that a company has measured offset and then working on reducing its carbon footprint from all of its products. And that means that there's actual effort, actual investment being made to take carbon out of the value chain, take carbon out of the operations and actually limit your impacts of your footprint. So personally, I think that that's where we need to, where we need to focus, but um, yeah, there's lots of ways to skin the cat. I think that you hit, you know, the nail right on the head is, I just think consumers trust certifications more because the otherwise a lot of company a lot of people don't take companies at their word you know anyone can say that they're reducing their greenhouse gas emissions anyone can say that but anyone can say that you're that they're carbon neutral and that's one of the things that we saw very ironically a month after we launched the organization earth day of 2019 we saw dozens and dozens of carbon neutrality claims and they all had their own parameters. It's kind of like, um, there's this funny video, uh, all about false advertising that I saw in school that was you know, the, the problem with the word natural, mm -hmm. you know, like you can literally put natural on anything and it doesn't have to be natural. And so, you know, and I, even a lot of my friends will ask, you know, what should I buy? What should I look for? I'm doing this. 
And I, and I do actually tell them, especially with everything that's going on uh, today, is you look for the B Corp. Look for a B Corp certification mm -hmm. because I personally know how intense it is to go through that process. I know the amount of money a company has spent to get that certification, a lot of work, all the different like teeny tiny points that they have to try to capture. Um, and so there's this trust in, in having certification. And so in my mind, from what I've seen, is that there's just going to be more certifications and more companies are going to be going after them because mm -hmm. they are, they feel more legitimate. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I'm really excited to kind of see how, um, well, even I'm going to tell my clients about climate neutral and, and kind of get them looking at it. So I think it's exciting. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I think one of the, we, Certainly are aware that there are lots of eco labels in the world, um, but aren't aren't willing to let that be our reason not to launch one that's specifically focused on carbon neutrality. Um, but the other thing that we that I would I would say is that it doesn't make a lot of sense for the world to have multiple labels that indicate the same or similar things because then people just get confused. It's not like you know there's six different equivalence to B Corp and you have to choose whether it's B Corp or C Corp or D Corp or E Corp, <laughs> right? It's just B Corp. And so it's easy for you to tell a friend, go look for the B Corp label. And if it's on there, it's on there. If it's not, it's not. Same thing with other better recognized ones like USDA Organic or 1% for the Planet, mm -hmm. uh, FSC Certified, Energy Star. These are all ubiquitous, but they're ubiquitous and they're effective because they're the one symbol. Yeah. So it becomes a binary choice. Is it there or is it not there? And so very selfishly, you know, in the U.S., we're sort of the first to market with a carbon neutrality label that's meaningful at, a, at an organizational scale. And we want there to be one symbol. And we want it to be ours. That's sort of the vision of, of where we're taking this, um, this little nonprofit because we don't want there to be, we don't want the consumer to be faced with the decision of which of these seven different neutrality claims should I actually believe or which is the one that makes the most impact on climate. All right. And I think your tool is going to really set you apart because even I've, you know, as someone who is in this space and I'm using all these different platforms, some of them are easier than others. Some of them are harder than others. And I think the easier you make it, the faster people will, will use it, you know? Yep. But, I want to talk about you really quick because uh, we have a few more minutes left and it's sort of a, a tradition on my podcast. Um, I think everyone knows that especially now being a sustainability person is it's impossible to be perfect. I mean, even zero waste people can't be zero waste right now. And as sustainability leaders, you've been doing this for 20 years. You're probably held to a higher expectation among your friends and people around you than, than others. People expect you to be doing the perfect thing, but there are always things that we do that make us feel like a little bit of a hypocrite. And so I kind of wanted to challenge you and ask, you know, what in your day-to-day -day life uh, makes you feel like a little guilty? And I want to say maybe don't pick travel because everyone says that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the one that I was going to pick, <laughs> and uh, but I was going to tie it more to I, I love the outdoors. I love I love 
going on trips and I love, yeah, getting out into the wilderness, but I have two kids and a job and sometimes it's hard to do that. And I have no problem. There have been times in my career where I've sat on an airplane for business a lot and I have no problem getting on an airplane and, you know, flying six hours and then turning around 24 hours later and flying back. It's just, it's fine, especially if that 24 hours is getting to someplace magical. So that's definitely been, I mean, I, I do that probably twice or three times a year, if that, maybe twice a year. So a little bit of airline, airline emissions that are just solely to feed my love for just adventure and, and the outdoors. I live in the suburbs and living in the suburbs is compared to living in say a high rise building in a city is an absolute environmental disaster because you end up having to drive to the grocery store and not walk. And you end up living in a single family home that uses far more energy per square foot than an apartment. So in a, in a perfect environmental world, yeah, I would definitely live in a city. Uh, but I do it because again, I just, you know, the garden and chickens and you know kids who run around free range um and that's just sort of something i feel are really important uh, you know you, you kind of make these decisions about what is what, what's important to you in your life but i try to mitigate that i mean we have one car we drive it no more than nine thousand miles a year um wow. it's not an electric car but we've done i've done I've, trust me i've done the numbers <laughs> and it's, it's far better for us to do what we're doing rather than throwing away the car and buying an electric car yeah. Embedded emissions in an electric car are not insignificant. So we're much better off keeping the car, driving it very little, riding bikes a lot, um, purchasing, you know, I, I work with, um, th there's a company called uh, Arcadia Power, which has mm -hmm. some great renewable energy options. So I use Arcadia to uh, go 100% wind energy, looking at replacing our natural gas. I'm talking about all the great things I'm doing. Look, listen to me. <laughs> No, this is important though, because it gives people ideas, you know, that are, that don't live in a city. And because you were saying like, you know, obviously it's more efficient there, but you're doing all these other things that are really important. And I love that you have chickens. That's so fun. Yeah, we, um, we just got, we just got three, three ones to replace the aging, aging chickens in our flock, um, who will become pets, but not layers soon. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, the other thing I was going to say, though, is I, I took a look about a year ago at my actual carbon emissions from my family, because I know all the data, right? I know exactly how many BTUs of natural gas we use, how many kilowatt hours of electricity we use, and how many miles of, 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 of driving we do, therefore how much gasoline. And I can, I can run the numbers, my own footprint, and I can do it very precisely. And one of the biggest sources of emissions is just heating our house, because it's an old house and it uses natural gas. And there are six tons a year of carbon emissions to come from just heating, heating our house and our hot water and cooking. And the only way to fix that is by electrifying with a heat pump. So I'm in the process of looking at replacing our furnace with, with a heat pump. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's an example of technology that, you know, back to the reduction conversation, technology that really didn't exist and wasn't wasn't going to work in a cold climate like Boston 10 years ago, but now it does. So we yeah. can do that and, um, and will. So there are ways like that. Um, but the other part of an individual's footprint that people often ignore is this, the footprint or the impact of the stuff that they purchase. 
and it comes into just two general categories, the food that they eat. And there's some amazing data and research out there on the carbon impacts of food. And we are, I would say we're 98% vegetarian in our house. Um, kids eat hot dogs once a week, but mostly it's, mostly it's a vegetable diet. And sometimes I think, especially in the winter, to give, a, to give our kids a varied diet, I really feel badly about buying that tomato or um, piece mm -hmm. of fruit that's imported from a ways away. But if you look at the life cycle assessment emissions of food, it's way more important to choose what you eat than it is to choose where it came from because the transportation emissions of food are, signi are significantly smaller. They're a really tiny chunk compared to the production emissions. So it's much better for us to open up a can of beans, even if those beans are grown in California or Florida, uh, than it is for us to buy beef and yeah. feed it for, for protein. So, so we think a lot about the food emissions and then of course the emissions that's, that, that are embedded in the stuff that we buy uh, and so try to buy as little as possible. I never buy new clothes. That's my contribution. <laughs> I love secondhand. Like I love secondhand. The problem is, is I struggle with buying secondhand and not having it shipped. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's hard, like find exactly what you want without having it shipped. Um, so I love that. And, uh, and I, it, it's definitely always like a journey and, you know, obviously, as I always say, you're, you're never done. We're going to keep, evolving right. and finding new technologies and implementing them into our right lifestyle and it's funny that you mentioned a plant-based diet because i i just i am mostly vegan i had someone on the podcast yesterday who uh is a doctor is a new and also a nutritionist and we talked all about like the importance of and all the, just like the issues with having meat in your diet and and sort of the carbon footprint that goes along with it and just in general, any packaged foods, anything processed, like the carbon footprint of that compared to just fruits and vegetables and things like that is, is just, it's pretty insane. Mm -hmm. um, but then my last question is really like the flip side of being the sustainability hypocrite is also just, you know, we think about pet peeves as like these little things that are annoying, that are easy to change. Sort of what's your sustainability pet peeve? Interesting. So when I was pondering this question, I interpreted it a little bit differently. And I thought about things that people do where they think they're being virtuous, but it's actually meaningless. And the two pet peeves I, like I have there are plastic straws. And that's at the individual level and corporate, uh, you know, at the corporate level, um, energy used within, electricity used within a corporate headquarters building, which isn't as easy to get as plastic straws, but I'll explain it in a sec. So plastic straws, I mean, as a share of total plastic waste or overall consumer waste are such a tiny fraction. And cardboard straws, I would say, are horrible. They feel terrible in your mouth. <laughs> They don't work. And yet somehow the entire plastic straw supply chain was completely transformed into cardboard straws. I don't know how we transformed like that whole industry overnight yeah. as quickly as, as, as it happened when the alternative is such a low quality product and the environmental benefits are so limited, so limited. Now one could argue that 
all the metal straw well yeah i have a lot of metal straws but they're yeah. recyclable right uh metals recyclable yeah um but the amount of carbon in a metal straw is probably 12 times what it is in a plastic straw mm. um but anyway if people if it's like the recycling movement where it builds environmental consciousness then then fantastic but i think people need to be spending emotional energy on things that are way more impactful than just switching to a plastic straw and feeling like oh i did my part today <laughs> um and then companies similarly you know they often will spend months years analyzing or agonizing over the specific environmental attributes of their electricity used in their corporate headquarters completely forgetting about all the fact that they ship all this stuff over to china to have it processed and manufactured and then all the emissions over there and that's 98 percent of their footprint and they use it one megawatt hour of electricity per year and we're talking about a difference of like you know 400 pounds of carbon um on their on their on their electricity usage so so two two, two examples where people are they're thinking they're, they're being virtuous but their actual actions aren't doing much of anything i mean the other but the other um dimension to your question pet peeves about what people do that's completely where the the alternative is is much easier um stores that leave their doors open and mm. air condition air condition the outside or heat the outside ridiculous there's actually a someone set up a website to identify offenders of this um in boston uh, no no it's like it's ev everywhere you can on your phone oh, you, can I report, want this. you can report stores that that do that i mean that is absurd because heating and cooling is the majority of those of the environmental impact of those stores of the actual operations that's ridiculous um you know people who leave the windows open to cool the building down while the heat's on um, you know, just because it's easier than turning the thermostat down. That stuff is, is inexcusable because it's so easy to change. That's a good one because yeah. uh, there's definitely in the summer, you could be walking down and this definitely happened in Boston last, a couple, you know, last year, I'd be walking and you'd walk by a store that had their doors open and it's like freezing, like, but it's Blast 90 degrees out, you know, so it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Close your doors. Yeah. LED light bulbs, light bulbs. Everyone just change your light bulbs. Yeah. Incandescents are worthless. There's so much LED technology out there. Every type of light bulb comes in LED format. Change your light bulbs. There's nothing good about incandescents. And recycle them appropriately at your local Best Buy. Well, incandescents you can just throw in the trash. Really? Yeah. Fluorescents you have to be careful because there's mercury in them. But incandescents, there's nothing. It's just glass and glass metal. I don't and actually metal. know how to tell the difference between the two. Does it say it on it? Uh, it'll say HG on the on the on the compact fluorescence, yeah. Okay. And usually they have a little spiral if they're one that fits into a normal lamp socket, or if they're if they're bigger like a floodlight, it, you could still see a spiral inside or at least tubing. Okay. Uh, but it would say HG for mercury, on okay. the, somewhere somewhere on the stem of the light bulb. Yeah, just get LEDs. Um, I they mean, last longer. They last longer. It's better light, um, and they're. 90% more efficient. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, I can go on. Lawn mowers, <laughs> leaf, leaf blowers, leaf blowers, a huge pet peeve of mine. People parade through neighborhoods and using leaf blowers that, you know, throw dust and particles out at 200 miles an hour and they spew out nitro nitrogen oxide emissions when there's literally nothing to blow other than the dust. 
My pet peeve that I just thought of now, and someone just did it recently, so it pisses me off so much, is people that put balloons in the air. Mm-hmm. For any kind of celebration, let's release the balloons. And a lot of times it's like in memory of somebody or it's a party or it's just like that, that thing's coming back down, you mm-hmm. know, and you, you're, you're, you're basically littering. Like mm-hmm. pe- there's littering signs all over the place. It's illegal to litter, but that's littering. And we just don't care. I, I went to, when I was in elementary school in the innocent eighties, um, we used to have a balloon launch every year and it was every, every kid, 150 kids in the school would take, have a balloon and we'd attach a, a, a cardboard um, note to the balloon with our address and our name. And we'd let the thing off. And I will tell you, it was an amazing sight seeing 150 <laughs> balloons launch every year, but those balloons would go up. And then they would all come down somewhere and whoever found the card was supposed to email you or not email you, we didn't have email, um, was supposed to send you a, a postcard <laughs> back. Um, but I agree with you. We just saw it last weekend, there was graduation and everybody was launching balloons. And my kids were even saying, what about the animals? As in mm. what happens to the animals who eat those balloons? Yeah. Um, come down. Not to end the podcast on a sad note. Um, there's lots I, of hope right now. There's lots of hope. I mean, I think the last, <laughs> I think the last couple of months has, in a weird way, been good for the environment and and people's at least awareness of you know the, the connectedness and the vulnerability of all of us. And we can just hope that this is uh, the beginning of a new era. Yeah, I just then we're we're riding a wave. I just feel like we got to ride this wave of change right now. There's a lot of unrest, and people are looking to just shake things up and. I'm excited. I think it's, I think we've got a lot of opportunities. So, yep. um, so let's go make climate cool again. Let's make climate cool again. <laughs> make America cool again. Um, I love it. Thank you, Austin. For people that want to reach out to you and maybe have questions, um, can they follow you on Instagram or follow you on LinkedIn or what's the best way for people to contact you? Yeah. So I, have a Twitter account personally, and we have a climate neutral Twitter account. Um, I don't tweet much, but do respond to personal tweets, uh, to DMs. So I'm just at AF Whitman, A-F-W-H-I-T-M-A-N, and we're at climate neutral. On Instagram, we're at be climate neutral. And we also have um, a LinkedIn page, which people don't go to much. And we are, We've got a website. We've got a contact form on the website. Um, we don't always keep up to date with uh, messages that come through there because we get a lot. But um, but yeah, there are loads of different ways to connect and reach out. Um, very active on LinkedIn, and um, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I know we ran a little bit over. Um, I appreciate your time, and I'm ju- I'm just excited for sort of what's next. And I know I'm going to be really following closely with climate neutral and talking more with my clients and um, I'm excited. So thank you so much for coming on and I really enjoyed learning from you. Thanks for having me. It's been a great, great talk. I've really enjoyed it. Guess what happened to me? Another crazy story? Come on, AC. I was hanging at the court, just playing some ball, working on my game. Yeah, we heard it all. I heard the fans screaming. I thought it was for me. But then I saw a shadow. It was 12 for 3. It was Shaquille O'Neal. What? What did he say? How about some one-on-one? You want to play? I told him why not. I got some time. But when I beat you real bad, try not to cry. Please, Aaron, are you for real? One-on-one?
Shaquille O'Neal? Yeah, 34 center from the LA Lakers. You must have been nervous. I know I could take him. Stared at Shaq, psych him out. Said O'Neal, you're in my house now. Start the game, the whistle blows. Pay attention close as the story goes. It's like boom, boom. I put it in the hoop like slam. I heard the crowd screaming out jam. I swear that I'm telling you the facts. Cause that's how I beat Shaq. Boom, boom. I put it in the hoop like slam. I heard the crowd screaming out jam. I swear that I'm telling you the facts. Cause that's how I beat Shaq. So check it out. I thought I had the lead. But then he started scoring mad points on me. I was scoring the bricks. Was he hitting all the shots? was a way that I could make it stop. I had a plan, I could change the pace. I said, yo, Shaq, you didn't tie your shoelace. Huh? He looked down, I stole the ball. I'm taking him to school now, watch me all. A three-pointer, nothing but net. Come on, Shaq, had enough yet? Down by two, I'm catching up. I guess you're getting nervous, cause you know what he loves. It's like, boom, boom, I put it in the hoop like slam. slam. I heard the crowd screaming out, jam. jam. I swear that I'm telling you the facts, cause that's how I beat Shaq. Still be friends. Fans went nuts. They put me on their shoulders. Then I heard a voice, and it sounded like my mother's. Get up for school. You're gonna be late. Ma, can't you see that I'm playing the game? How could you be playing if you're still in bed? Are you getting sick? Did you hit your head? Oh man, it was all a dream. I guess the kind of thing can never happen to me. If it was a dream and it wasn't real, how'd I get a jersey with the name O'Neal? O'Neal. O'Neal. Beat Shaq.